0: are left in society and that is exactly what Belshazzar does he orders his minions to retrieve the holy golden vessels from God that had originally been in God's temple and to be brought out of Nebuchadnezzar's museum and he then uses them as wine dishes for his party there must have been that delicious sense of rebelling against authority We're all going to hell, a drunken floozy would say laughingly as she raised one of the vessels to her painted lips. With so few words, the author has painted a picture of a civilization on its last legs, one that is licentious and chaotic, but above all, a society which is so profane that it can only mock things of eternal value. It takes the holy things of God and makes a sport of them. And as we watch these hedonists laugh as they dance with the vessels in their hands, mocking their holiness, we remember that those very same vessels had carried the blood of sacrifices into the holy place. In the book of the Revelation, we encounter mystical Babylon, that great apostate empire. And like this physical Babylon, the mystical Babylon of Revelation is pictured as a drunk, immoral, prostitute. And she holds in her hand a golden cup. She is drunk, says the passage, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So let's now think about the central block of the story, verses 5 through 23. I don't know if you've ever visited the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square, but if you have you will have seen one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings, and it is his depiction of Belshazzar's feast. I find it terrifying the king's head is twisted round, his face wide-eyed with fear as he stares at this mysterious hand that writes on the plaster wall behind him. The phrase, the writing on the wall, has entered into our language as a phrase that means that a final judgment has been issued and it cannot be escaped. I'm sure you noticed in our reading just how much importance is given in this story to the one we studied last week in chapter 4. We're being told to place these two chapters side by side. And when we do that, we see something rather frightening. The story of Nebuchadnezzar, told in chapter 4, well, it's ultimately a story of restoration. It's a story of salvation. But this story in chapter 5 is a story of final judgment. Suddenly the bravado and the laughter die away. The music and the dancing stop. And everyone is gripped with a profound fear, none more so than the king. I mean, our our modern uh, translations are very polite, a little kind to Belshazzar, because in the original we're told that the king was so scared that he urinated himself. And his terror increases when it becomes clear that no one is able to read the words on the wall. Now, that seems very curious, because the words would have been seen and heard thousands of times each week by Belshazzar. Mene, mene, teckel, parson. When they're taken as nouns, they were units of weight. But that actually misses the main point. In that culture, currency transactions using silver and gold were weighed out. Okay? So we should understand these words to mean units of currency or money. The closest we might get to it today would be a little phrase such as dollar, dollar, nickel, cent. But the king was unable to understand the meaning of those words they were just symbols to him they made no sense and that observation leads to an obvious question why not why was Belshazzar unable to grasp the meaning of the message written on the wall and the answer to that question can be found in this big central block of verses the first thing we notice is that this long section is really a walk into the past The characters who emerge are older people who've been relegated to the fringes of society. The king's mother and Daniel himself appear almost like ghosts from the past, and it's the past that they talk about. Time and time again, they remind Belshazzar about the story of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, how God had humbled that proud man so that when he acknowledged God as God, he could be restored, and he ended up praising God. In other words, that old pagan king discovered something of much greater value than power and wealth. He discovered the value of eternal things. And his testimony was a bit like a pattern laid down for others to follow follow old Nebuchadnezzar's path, and you'll end up with treasure in heaven. You'll discover things of eternal value. I don't think Daniel liked Belshazzar very much, he isn't disrespectful but boy is he cold and unyielding. And the climactic moment comes in verse 22 when he accuses the king directly. You knew all this, he said. You knew it. God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar had been told repeatedly to Belshazzar as evidence, as wisdom about how to live. But Belshazzar had willfully chosen to ignore all that evidence. That's the real significance of his blasphemous use of the temple vessels. He knew Nebuchadnezzar had repented and humbled himself. He ended his days praising the God of Israel, telling everyone that God was the source of ultimate value. But as Belshazzar filled those holy vessels with wine, he was saying, no, God is not the source of ultimate value. I am. My pleasure is of ultimate value. (laughs) How modern is that? Our culture tells its young people that life is the pursuit of happiness do whatever makes you happy because the only valuable thing in life is your own personal pleasure but that lie cuts people off from discovering things of eternal value think again of those words on the wall they meant in effect dollar dollar nickel cent they meant money but here's the point Money isn't valuable in itself. Money is only a means to gain something of genuine value. Look at this ghastly piece of plastic issued by the Ulster Bank. A five-pound note. It is inert, lifeless, a bit of physical stuff. It's only when it's invested properly that the the, the note generates any meaning. That's what the Lord's parable about the lost coin is about, by the way. The housewife, once she had found the coin, could buy a meal for her children or a nice warm coat for an elderly relative or a thoughtful little gift for a friend who was feeling sad. In that sense, money is a metaphor for our physical lives, for our material blessings. In a strictly materialistic sense, we're just a bunch of inert matter. But if we invest our lives in the right way, then we gain real treasure. We build up a life that has eternal value. So we build up things like faith and wisdom and kindness. We build character. We make friends who will last for all eternity. And we discover the greatest treasure of all when we come to know the character, the morally beautiful character of Christ himself. But Belshazzar couldn't see any of that. He could only see the material, wine, food, and sex. That's all there was to life. His own pleasure was the goal of living. It was an end in itself and so all that talk about the precious blood of Christ or the love of God shed abroad in our hearts that's all just double dutch to people like Belshazzar he couldn't even understand the words and it's a sad fact that Belshazzar's situation is not unique we've all heard stories of people who lived desolate lives and then who on their deathbeds opened the bible but all they could see was words on a page because they were unable to make sense of the writing. And the solemn truth is that people like that will be without excuse. On the day of judgment, God will point to all the evidence he has provided, the hard lessons he taught them, the wisdom he arranged to flow into their lives from the lives of others. And in the language of Daniel 5, he will say, you knew the truth, you knew it. But you made the willful choice to believe that your personal pleasure was the only ultimate thing, only ultimately valuable thing in life, and in so doing, your capacity to appreciate things of eternal value atrophied and died. Let's now consider the final few verses uh, from 24 to 31. In, in, the, in the big block, the main section that we've just finished, we find out how Belshazzar valued God. In these final verses, we'll see how God values Belshazzar. The words on the wall uh, have been written in Aramaic without vowels, but when Daniel's interpreting the dream, he adds in vowels, and that gives uh, Belshazzar three sentences, including verbs rather than nouns, which together make up his final judgment. So I'm going to take each one in turn. Mene, God has numbered your days and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed and found wanting. Peres, you will be divided. God has numbered your days. Your every breath is in his hands. One day, perhaps this night, he will bring them to an end. So that's the first sentence. Then comes the second one, tekel. There will come a day when your life will be weighed. One of the reasons why gold and silver were weighed and scaled during a commercial transaction, it was to make sure that the metals were genuine. So we should discard the idea that God will somehow weigh up our good deeds and see if they balance out our bad deeds. No, the weighing here is referring to the testing process that discerns whether genuine faith exists or not. God weighs us to see if the gold of faith is present or if it's a fake. Why did God save Nebuchadnezzar and destroy Belshazzar? Well, both men were weighed. Nebuchadnezzar had to go through that terrible test of being reduced to an animal for a season, living in the palace gardens, eating grass, being drenched from the dew of heaven. But then remember those words at the end of chapter 4. I quoted them earlier. At the end of the days of testing, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. Now, compare that verse with 523. You, Belshazzar, have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Both men suffered from the same sin, the sin of pride and both men were tested. They were weighed. Nebuchadnezzar passed his test, and eventually he became the head of gold. But Belshazzar failed his test, and he proved himself to be a worthless thing. Every Christmas, there's usually some heart story in a newspaper about some forgotten soul who died alone. Maybe the body of an elderly woman discovered in her flat days after her death because milk delivery started to pile up on her doorstep. It's very sad for nurses in palliative care units to discover that one of their patients has no relatives and no friends. No one ever comes to visit. A person like that can feel as if they are worthless and unwanted. The earth doesn't seem to want them or find them valuable. Well, if that scenario is grim, how much worse would it be if heaven didn't want you or find you valuable? The truly horrible lesson from Belshazzar's life is this. If a person lives as if God is worthless, then they themselves will end up worthless. It's not that God's being mean here or vindictive. It's just a logical consequence of choosing to reject the source of my own value. Why do I matter after all? I matter because God finds me valuable. How do I know that? Because Christ died for me. Now, if I reject that source of value then as day follows night, I am choosing to become worthless. If I reject the preciousness of Christ's shed blood, then I become devoid of value. So make sure when you are weighed by God that you are connected to the source of your own value. That connection is a thing called faith. Remember that one king passed the test of humble faith. And the other failed. One lifted up his eyes to heaven. The other lifted up himself against the Lord of heaven. And in so doing, he lost the ability to appreciate truly valuable things. And in the end, he became devoid of value himself. And then comes the third and final sentence. You will be divided. First, your soul will be divided from your body when you die. And then, if you have not faith, your soul will be divided from God's presence for all eternity. I have mostly explained this passage from an individual perspective today, but we shouldn't forget that this passage deals with the fall of Babylon, and that should make every theologian's ears prick. Daniel begins with the fall of Jerusalem, and then this first part of the book ends with the fall of Babylon. I don't need to tell you that those two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon, play a central role in the great drama that we find in the book of the Revelation. So it would be wrong of me not to just say a few words before I sit down uh, by looking at this story in terms of its cosmic significance. Daniel 5 tells the story of a society that had passed the point of no return. It defiantly mocked everything that was holy. And remember that when Belshazzar called for the vessels of the temple, that man was exercising leadership. He led his nation into blasphemy. And in that sense, he is a prototype of a figure referred to in the New Testament, as the man of lawlessness. Elsewhere he's referred to as the Antichrist. Christ is God made man, this is man made God. In the Garden of Eden, Satan promised humanity that they would be like God. In the end times, says the Apostle Paul, this counterfeit Christ will exalt himself, enthrone himself as an object of worship. He will be worshipped as God. In the book of the Revelation, John pictures this Antichrist as a great amoral beast. And the people who used to say, who is like unto Jehovah, will now say, who is like unto the beast? Now, here's the point. There is an historical inevitability about this. Just as we saw the consequence of relativism in Daniel 1 flowing through into the chaos of Daniel 5, we can see the link between the rejection of God as the source of value and the appearance of the man of lawlessness. You sow wheat one day you will reap wheat. You sow barley, one day you will reap barley. Where you have sown relativism, you will reap the deification of man. So this ancient text has a stern lesson for modern humanists. There will come a day when the music will stop. The laughter will die away because people will see the writing on the wall. We read the words of a mighty angel in Revelation 18, fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons. But in the very next verse, there's another voice, one that I trust you will hear just now. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Before it is too late, step away from this world with its corrupt value system, its profane mockery of all that is holy. Lift up your eyes to heaven and find there the source of all that is truly valuable. Let's close in prayer, and then I'll hand back to Ian. Somewhere for a final hymn. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for showing us from your word why kingdoms rise and fall. We thank you for giving us a hope that is stronger and more lasting than those who have promised the world a thousand-year Reich. But, Father, as we have thought about this solemn story, we are reminded, above all, about the source of our value and reminded about what is truly valuable in life. And forgive us, Father, if we've got messed up in our thinking about that and help us to use the material blessings that we have and translate them into things of eternal value, into character and hard work for the Lord that will generate friendships that will last for eternity. And Father, we pray for those in this room who perhaps have walked the path of Belshazzar, who have thought that the only ultimate value in life is pleasure, And pray, Lord, that you would help them to step out of that um, futile and nihilistic value system, a system that will eventually render them worthless and valueless. And you would save them, Lord, that they would be like Nebuchadnezzar rather than Belshazzar, that they would lift up their eyes to heaven and praise you as the source of value. We pray your blessing on every head bowed. Lord, you know the turmoil in some of our hearts And we pray that everyone here this day would know the peace of God reigning in their hearts. In Jesus' name.